Good morning. Good morning. Wow, my voice sounds strong. That's, um, I was like, hey. I, I am excited, so that, that's appropriate. It's good to see you guys. I've missed you. Um, it's been about a month for me uh, not being able to speak, so I told our team just, you know, if I get out of control, just to kind of rein me back in. And on top of it, I'm super excited about our series uh, that we're doing this month. It's uh, this entire fall, in fact. Um, because this summer, one of the reasons I get to take a step back and not speak through the month of August while Jason is speaking is I'm able to turn my focus on all the different things we're going to be pressing into in the fall. And I've never been more excited about where we're going this fall. It's going to be good. And uh, today we're going to kick off uh, the entire fall and this series at the exact same time because there's something I want to kind of press into uh, this morning in a kind of an abbreviated way. Um, to set this fall off right for us. But I want to start in a city that's perhaps not the first place you would think for a sermon to start. It's the city of Kuwait, and it was this past week. Um, some authorities uh, discovered that in the midst of uh, kind of the marketplace, there was this very fishy thing going on. And turns out that rotten fish was being sold. And the way that they were um, getting away with this kind of very scaly operation was they were putting googly eyes on fish and trying to sell it and pass it like it's fresh. Like this is actually, like I'm not making this up. This is a real picture from a market in Kuwait this past week where people are trying to, the, the merchant was trying to trick individuals buying fish because googly eyes screams right out of the ocean, right? And, and so this, this actually happened. The Kuwait officials had to shut them down because of this very um, kind of fishy thing and the scales of justice prevailed and the bait and switch was discovered and I'm reeling it in. Sorry, that's what happens when you don't speak for a month. You think you're funny and you have to remind yourself. And so, but what I loved about this story when I came across it is in one way it's humorous, but in other ways, I think it kind of captures the tragic picture that many of us experience when it comes to love sometimes. Uh, it's not as fresh as we hoped. We had a picture in our mind of what we thought it was going to be, but then we get into it and realize there's a lot, of, a lot more fake than real than we realized. And that getting that experience, having that love life that we somehow deep down inside know we were created to have seems to be almost impossible to grab hold of. Right? We all know, I mean, there's something inside of you and I that knows that Love is supposed to be something significant. That's why you don't have to be a Christian to sing a song about love and naturally drift towards the eternal and the impossible. Right? Why do songs always, like you, these love songs, it's like, I will love you forever. If I had a thousand years, I would give them all to you. I, I'm like, would you? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking if I had a thousand years, like that's a really long time. But our love songs, when we sing them, they, they call us to impossible tasks like, I'm going to climb the highest mountain for you, girl. And I want to be like, Jenny, I love you. But girl, I get, I get hard of breathing on the Blue Hills. I, I'm not sure if, if, if Mount Everest is the way I'm going to show my love for you because I'm going to die. Right? Or people are like, I'll swim the deepest ocean. I'm like, I'll drown. I won't swim the deepest ocean, but why? Because something inside of us are drawn towards declaring love at this grand eternal scale. And, and it's because God created you and I for love. 
He is the author, creator, the original. He is the OG of love, right? I mean, he embodies it. He defines it. And yet, um, what happens is that there is southern, there's this like this other kind of subtle undercurrent in our culture that while it declares love as eternal, it oftentimes ends in divorce. Or it's very surface. Like I had a series title for this um, that wasn't called Love Life. It was something else. But my wife told me if I sent that home and if I sent that in a postcard to your house and your six-year-old asked you what that series meant, I'd get in trouble. So I stuck with Love Life. But like, let's just take, for example, um, Ed Sheeran's uh, like, uh, Shape of You. I mean, you listen to that song, and it's like a popular love song. And first of all, if a guy ever called or like, you know, back in the day with Delilah, be like, yo, I want to dedicate this song to this very special person. Like if, when Delilah is like 125 and my daughter's old enough to date when she's 43, and, um, and somebody calls Delilah and says, I want to dedicate this old song, Ed Sheeran, Shape of You, I'm going to be like, yeah, I want to dedicate the next 15 years of prison because like Shape of You is nothing but about your body. As if somehow that's like the embodiment of love. It's like, oh, I'm in love with the shape of you. And yet, for any of us who've been married a long time or just lived life, you know that the shape of you changes. And so does the hair. So it's like we live with this very crazy, googly-eyed fish of knowing there's something significant, deep, eternal, lasting, and yet simultaneously surface and superficial. And what it does is it drives us into paths and relationships and way of doing relationships that's never the way God intended them to be, and they turn out the way things not intended to be done turn out. They're broken. And so this series, this month, this is what we're going to talk about. What I want to do today is press into, I think, this critical step that's really important for all of us. It's a mindset, in fact, that is going to be at the very base of the love life that you know you were intended to experience. This mindset that is at the heart of the difference between great relationships and okay relationships. And it's a mindset that we see in a story 2,800 years ago, in a moment that has on the surface nothing to do with relationships, outside of one extremely broken one. It's found in a group of books in the Old Testament. It's in fact, uh, it's the historical books. And this particular story, it was part of a two-volume set um, that was named after a famous prophet in the Jewish faith named Samuel. And the second of the second volume of the two-volume set specifically dealt with the life of David as king. The two volumes in general focuses on David, but the second volume focuses on his time as the king of Israel, because David is one of the most famous Israeli kings in ancient history. And 2 Samuel is kind of dedicated to exploring and unpacking the good, bad, and ugly of his life. And about halfway through 2 Samuel, it takes a turn, and David enters into some difficult circumstances, situations, mainly all self-caused. And one of them involves a guy named Absalom. Absalom, who is a very attractive, very savvy, wise, uh, manipulative member of the royal family, decides that he wants to be king. And underneath David's kind of unwatching gaze, without even realizing, he starts to steal the kingdom away from David. And 
institutes in kind of a very quiet coup that overnight becomes not so quiet, and David has to flee. And Absalom begins to put people to death. He begins to restructure the kingdom, and overnight, he's the king. David is living in exile. David's commanders and army meet Absalom and his army, and Absalom ends up losing his life as a result. To complicate the matter, Absalom is one of David's sons. And so this is where we pick up. In chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, in this two-volume set in the Old Testament, with Absalom dying and David coming back to become king again. And Joab, who is a very important person, he's the, the general to David's army, is where we start. It says in verse 1, Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom and for the whole army. The victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men still in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the story. If you have the app that Jason referenced or if you've downloaded it inside the message notes, you can follow along. This is probably a story that most of you have never read before. And it starts off, what should have been a celebration moment is a, a moment of deep grief. The men who have just reclaimed the kingdom from this coup are now ashamed of what they've done. Why? Because David is mourning and weeping over the loss of his son, the son who tried to kill him and take over. And the whole country is living in the kind of very confused place of, I thought this was good, why, why do I feel so bad? And David, we see, is a man who's completely overtaken by grief, and all he can say is, oh, my son Absalom, oh, my son Absalom. And you can kind of just feel the emotional weight of what's going on inside. David's present, he's physically there in the kingdom, but he's MIA. He's, he's not emotionally, relationally present, he's distant. You see, things have not turned out the way David hoped they would. And he's living in the aftermath of that. He's in a very disappointing place. And while that's 2,800 years ago, I can't help but think that some of us understand what that disappointing place feels like. When you sit down and your spouse looks at you and says, I'm not sure I love you anymore. Or when your boss says, I've got to let you go. When your child looks at you and they say, I hate your guts, I want to leave. When the doctor says, sit down, we need to talk. Like, I think it may be 2,800 years in distance from that moment, but I think for some of us, it's not that far away. We know what it's like to live in a place where things have not turned out the way you hoped they would. And you're living in the aftermath of a disappointment that has destroyed you. This is David. All he can see is what's been burned down in his path. And yet, in this moment of where David is living, verse 5, Joab steps in. Then Joab went to the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all of your men, who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. Right? That's a whole separate love life series. We're not getting into that one. <laughs> I am not advocating for that lifestyle, okay? 
Sometimes when you read the Bible, it is not prescribing what you should do. It's just describing what stupid people were doing. This is one of those moments of describing. But this is Joab. And you need to know that Joab takes a risk here. To go to the king and to say what he just said to him could mean he dies. He goes to the king and he says, you've humiliated all of your men. Every single man who put down his life for you, David. You've humiliated him. And then he starts to walk through concentric circles with him. And he starts to remind David of all the people that he loves who's still alive that had Absalom not died, they would be dead. He says, David, all you can focus in on is Absalom. And you've completely lost sight of all the people who are still alive, including you, my great king. You can feel the tension. I love how when you engage with the Bible, it, it just transcends time. You step into this moment and you can feel this just palatable, what's in the air. He says, you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. He says, I see. He's like, you've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. I mean, think about the weight of that conversation. It's heavy. It's like, you don't care about us. You are so fixated on your pain. You are so consumed by what you've lost. You don't see us and the fact that we're still here. That we still love you. That we still follow you. That God is still leading you to be our king. You don't see any of that. How dare you, David? Because David's in a disappointing place. And he's fixated and he's focused and he's lost sight of all the things around him. All he can see is what he doesn't have and what he wishes he could have back. And this subtle moment is incredibly powerful because this isn't just for a man who's king who's about to lose his people. Right? You see Joab say to him, now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. Joab shakes him and says, David, you better get out there right now. Because if you don't, all this is gone. Absalom would have won because this entire kingdom will be lost. And you don't even have a clue, David. Imagine the general walking to the king and saying these words. Now we know this is the only moment that Joab ever does this to David. For decades, Joab serves David faithfully. The only moment in recorded history we have where Joab challenges David to his face is this moment right here. And it's because I think Joab understood something. That up until the 1960s, um, psychological literature kind of stumbled into it. But Joab picked up on this critical mindset 2,800 years ago. In the 1960s, some leading psychologists discovered in the midst of studying individuals that there were two separate mindsets. And that one mindset was, was typically at the core of lives that seemed to be resilient, lives that seemed to have grit, lives that seemed to, to be successful and to rise above disappointments and setbacks. And as they kept digging in, they realized that there were two stark different paths. And that most of these paths, 
that the challenge was that most people didn't even know they operated under these mindsets because these weren't mindsets you were taught. Your parents didn't sit you down and say, I want to teach you a mindset for life. This was a mindset that got caught growing up. You would learn it by what was said and what was not said, by the interactions that people had with you and the way they would respond to your interactions when you had with them. And they realized that these, these two different mindsets get caught as kids grow up and they don't really shift very much as they get older. And Joab is confronting this mindset. Psychologists would go on to label the mindsets an internal locus of control and external locus of control. And at this point, it's a really popular notion, especially in um, educational literature, because there's an incredible focus on these two different paths inside of fostering kids um, in challenging situations in the academics and education programs. But what Joab does is he realizes this, is, this mindset is at the core of David's struggle. And to kind of get out of the psychological literature, I think there's a way of understanding that that's a little bit different. It's with these two different objects. You see, the, an external locus of control is a lot like a thermometer. Now, a thermometer just reacts to the environment. So whatever the temperature in this room is, this will reflect it. And then you've got a thermostat. Thermostat's different. You set the temperature, and the room responds. One's reactive, one's responsive, one takes action. One is, is controlled by its circumstances, one recognizes it still has control in its circumstances. And these two different kind of visuals embody these two different mindsets, and David is a thermometer. This is where he is. He's reacting to what he's lost. All he can see is what he does not have. All he knows is Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab comes in and says, David, if you don't step it up and shift to this, you will lose everything today. You see, the, this one reacts, this one acts. This one just sees pain. This one still sees potential in the midst of pain. This one is living in the past. This one recognizes it can still have an impact in the present. This one has gripes about the way life has turned out. This one has gratitude even in the midst of how life has turned out. Two different ways of thinking. Two different ways of seeing. Ultimately, this one surrenders. Because when you're a thermometer, all you can do is react. All you can do is just take your cue from whatever you see one else do. Whereas this one steps it up and says, I still have some power. I still have some ability to make a difference. And where these two things get very powerful is when you start to hold up a mirror to your own life and you start to ask the question, okay, how do I tend to operate? I grew up in a family full of people who operated like this. Their addictions are extreme poverty. Um, the abuse, the, the way that life was just kind of handed to us. And so this past week, within a week and a half, the last member of my family who was living like this and the generation above my mom's passed away. And what's fascinating about my family is when you look at the family tree, while all of these have been present for generations, my mom took a different path. 
she determined that where she started from did not have to determine where she ended. And that meant that even if she bounced around in foster homes, even if she didn't have a permanent place to call home, even if she wasn't necessarily even wanted by her mother, it did not have to determine how she would mother. My mom didn't graduate high school, ends up having me when she's 18, and refuses to be one of these. And starts to take steps and slowly turns the dial into what is ultimately present today in her family's life. Where there's grandkids who love a grandmother. On grandparents' dad, on grandparents' day, I would tell people my grandma and grandpa was dead because I didn't want to talk about them. Because they were so, so mean and abusive and alcoholics and the things that they did. My daughter's favorite person on planet Earth, the one she would trade me for, is my mom. Like, I know my place, and it's because my mom is higher than me. And why? Is it all started with my mom recognizing that she doesn't have to be a thermometer. She can be a thermostat. She can make a choice. She still has some control over some of her circumstances. And, and so this moment with Joab and David, it's about life. But when you press into relationships, it gets really wrong. So if you're in this room and you're like, okay, we're in this series called Love Life, but I don't have a love life. Fair. <laughs> All right? Fair. But that doesn't mean you won't have a love life. And if all you do right now is to sit there waiting, hoping, one day they walk in, and they're going to be awesome when they do, then you're just doing this. But if you're single and you say, what does love life look like like this? It means that you, you have an idea. Yeah, you sit down and you say, this is what he's going to be like. This is what she's going to be like. Not what they're going to look like. Yes, that matters. But the shape of you, the shape changes sometimes. So let's talk about what doesn't change. Who they are. Their character. The way they treat their mom. The way they respect and treat people who work for them. Or you start drilling in. Do they keep their word? Can you trust them? Because when you date someone, you get the best version of them. They are in straight up dry run rehearsal. I mean, they are trying to give you everything they can. Googly eyes and all. To get you to sign up. Okay, And what happens in that moment is they smell good and they're pretty or she's attractive or he's handsome and you get stupid. It's been documented. So you can't wait to that moment to determine. you got to go in with some knowledge. And so what singleness looks like with this is you sitting down and say, this is what I want to see in that future version of we. This is who I want them to be and this is who I want to be. And then the thermostat says, are they around? No, not yet. But I'm going to start figuring out where those type of people hang out. And I'm going to hang out there too. And then I'm going to start working on me. Because I'm, I'm going to do me. And so if I said that that future version of we is someone who is good with their finances and that we're financially strong, but I spend money like I'm, I'm Bill Gates, that's probably a problem, unless you're Bill Gates. Right? I mean, so you focus on you. What is it about you that needs to shift and change for that future version of we? 
So that when that person walks in who's got all those awesome traits and they look good too, then they look at you and they see everything on their list they wish they would find too. That's what it looks like if you're single to be a thermostat. Is you focus on who you are going to be in that future version. And that you find contentment and satisfaction in being single. Because a person who can find satisfaction and contentment and singleness makes perfect, perfect setup for finding singleness, for finding contentment when you get married. If you think being married is going to solve your loneliness, you're going to be disappointed. It's just not. If you think that there's going to be someone who's going to Jerry Maguire you and say, you complete me. I'm sorry. You are created in the image of God. You are too wonderful. You are too unknown in your vastness and what God has put inside of you to be simply completed by someone walking up to you as if there's some Lego block. It doesn't work like that. And so you learn contentment in this season and it will transfer into the next. Because everything in this season transfers to the next season. Good, bad, and ugly. And that's why I said focus on you. If you're getting ready to get married, this is just focused in on that day. This one understands that there are a bunch of days hopefully that happen after that day. That being a thermostat and not a thermometer if you're about to get married means you're putting more work and emphasis on the days that follow that special day than that special day. Look, I get it. It's, a, it's an important day, but that day will one day either be a regret for you or a setup for you. you. So focus on you. Have the difficult conversations now. Because when you get married, you will have to have those difficult conversations then. And it is a whole lot better to find out. Someone approached me recently, and they're like, hey, would you do premarital counseling for me? And I was like, you probably don't want me to. <laughs> it's like, if I'm being real with you, I'm going to try to break you up. Like, I, I'm not joking. You come to me for premarital counseling, I'm going to try to break you up. Why? Because I would rather break you up now and you figure that out than you get 15 years down the road and realize it then. It is far more painful and far more destructive. And that's what I believe love looks like, me trying to break you up. When we went through premarital counseling, we were really fortunate. The, one of the first questions I was asked was, give me the 25 things you don't like about your future wife. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, one, two, three, and Jenny's like, done. And I'm like, hold up now. Girl, I'm on number five. How'd you get the 25 so fast? Because when you get the 25, he says, now give me 25 more. Why? Because he reckons they are not everything. They squeeze the toothpaste from the middle. They don't know how to load a dishwasher. They're smelly. Like, there's a lot of things about them that you don't see when you're dating. And he was pressing us into these difficult conversations that we needed to have now. Because he realized the importance of the difficult conversations now set us up for later. If you're married it means that you stop complaining to your friends about how much of a bum he is. That griping thing is this. 
Is he a bum? I don't know, maybe. But I know that if he's just a bum and you're just a thermometer, I can tell you how this thing is going to end. And it, it's with both of you miserable. This means instead of talking to your friends about them being a bum, you sit down and you have a legitimate conversation about what their bumdom is doing to your relationship. <laughs> and what non-bumdom looks like to you. Because you need to have a conversation about that. I am so grateful that my wife has looked at me at times and said difficult things that I know from her personality were impossible for her to say. But I'm so glad she did. Because she was choosing this path, not this one. That what this one looks like is you actively dating them, learning about them. I promise you that the person that you said yes to, there was a reason you said yes to them. You saw something in them. Do you still tell them what you saw in them? Do they know what you saw in them? What happens is life happens and we start to forget. And we start to drift away and we start to kind of autopilot our relationship and we go to explore all these other things in life. The brokenness inside of us that, that drives us that we haven't ever even unpacked before drives us into these pursuits and these hobbies and these different kind of I'm going to win at work and all the time losing at home. Like We start to chase after all these other things. And we put our relationships on autopilot. And that's just thermometer living. It's why so many couples, when their parents, when, when, or for some of you, Right? When the kids leave the home, the parents do too. Because they had this orbit around their children, and it wasn't around them. Ella knows that mommy and daddy came first, and we're going to come second too. That Ella knows that while she may be my princess, Jenny's my queen. Okay? And I mean that. It's like, girl, you're my little princess, and I love you. But Jenny's the queen. Because this thing's not about you. You get the benefits of what we do. And that, that's the thermostat way of living and stepping in. It means you don't shortchange you and the strength of you in this moment. You keep building and developing and fostering you now. If you're divorced and you hope for a redo, then what this looks like for you is, is saying, okay, were they a bomb? Yes. Did they have problems? Yes. But I chose that problem. I said yes to them. And even if 99% of why this thing has fallen apart, there's still 1% of me that did. And if you don't, I know especially when we get in that place, it's painful. But when we start living like a thermometer, everything is their fault. And we lose sight of the thermostat way of recognizing that we played a role in it too. And that the thermostat way says, okay, if I'm ever going to redo my I do, then there's some things I need to do about me first. There's some things inside of me. There's ways I respond. There's ways that I fight. There's ways that I'm passive. There's ways that I sit and stew that I need to deal with if I want the next time around to be better. And to focus in on you. Because you can control you even if you can't control them. And this, this plays out, man, we, I could keep you here for 30 more minutes just talking about the implications of these two different mindsets and parenting and finances 
and your job. I mean, this, this is so pivotal that when you start to unpack it, you realize, wait a second, I have a lot more control than I realized. And who I'm becoming and what I can see in my life and what I can experience in my life. That all of us have the ability to move from this into this. And, and if you're struggling with an addiction, right, where this to this looks like is simply you starting to say out loud, I have a problem and I need help. And then you put help on your calendar. That's what this looks like for you. But then when we shift from this thermo, th thermometer to a thermostat, what happens is something powerful. And we see that in verse 8. So the king got up and he took his seat in the gateway. And when all the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Right? And the, the second part of 8 is setting the stage for the next portion in verse 9. But what happens in the immediate aftermath is David walks to the gate. And why is that significant? Because of the gate... The gate was the ancient Near East equivalent of the seat of leadership. It was, it was where contracts were signed. If you were going to sign a contract, you were going to go do it at the gate of the city. If you were going to enter into a marriage agreement, if you were going to conduct business, if you had judicial affairs to attend to, you would do it at the gate. If a decision was going to be reached, it was done at the gate. The gate was the place of leadership. The gate was the place of presence. And David had been absent from the gate. He was no longer present there. And so people's lives had stopped. And David, stepping back into the gate, made a statement to all the city that I'm back. I've returned. I'm here. I'm ready to lead again. And people, what did they do? They started to come back to him. Why? Because David threw down this and said, I'm, I'm back. I'm this again. And I know that there's some baggage. I know there's some things I need to work through and there's some apologies that I need to have. But I just need you to know from the get-go, I'm back and I'm here and I'm in the gate. Because something happens when you step into the gate. Your presence shifts things in ways that you can't imagine. I recognize for so many of you, you want to push back and say, you don't understand how dark it is. You don't understand how hard it is. You don't understand how bad it is. And I say, yes, maybe I don't. But I know you're probably not standing in the gate. And until you get back in the gate, you don't know what it's going to look like. You're living in last year's harvest. You're living in the consequences of choices that you made back then. Yes, I recognize that living in last year's harvest is bad, but that does not preclude that you can't have a new harvest next year. It doesn't mean that you can't live through this harvest and plant new seeds for where you want to go. But you've got to get back in the gate. I learned this my first year of grad school when I started dating. Well, I wanted to date a girl named Virginia. I liked Virginia. She was pretty. She smelled good. She thought I was funny, which was a key priority for me because I think I'm hilarious. And um, she actually laughed. Not everyone laughs. And uh, so it's like, this is a good sign. But she didn't like me. I had this problem. I was in the friend zone. Okay? I was just a good friend. I was like her chirp, chubby, balding friend. You know, he's really sweet. He's chubby and he's balding. But that's where I was stuck. And so we'd been hanging out and we'd been talking and getting to know each other. And, um, and we had some friends coming in town. And so I call her up and I'm like, hey, you're going to that friend thing and I'm going to that friend thing. Hey, let's save gas. How about I pick you up and we go to that friend thing together? You know, as friends, because that's what friends do. They go to friend things together with friends. Okay, I'll pick you up. And so, I'm, but I'm scheming. I'm like, okay, this is the first time we're going to be alone. So when I pick her up to go to the friend thing, 
I want to like, give her flowers and tell her how I feel, right? So I go get flowers, and I had this like, really nice kind of cover that my friend had asked me to get flowers for his fiance in this like, celebration party we were having. And so she gets in the car, and I've got the two things of flowers in the back. She sits down, and I'm like, hey, friend. And, um, and so I grab the flowers, and I throw it in her lap. And I don't say anything. I start driving. And I look over there, and her face is red. She looks super embarrassed. And I was like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, no, this is failing. And I was like, oh, those are just flowers for our friends. He'd asked me to pick them up. Don't worry about it. You know, because I don't want you to get awkward and think I like you or something. Right? So it's just like, hey. And so we drive. Um, we get to the friend thing. To make the matters worse, uh, we all gather at this one house, and then we head to the restaurant. And she gets in a car with someone else. I'm like, Blast. And so we get to the restaurant, and all, the entire time I'm at the restaurant, all I can think about is how I've blown it because I was a chicken because I threw flowers in her lap to see how she was going to react. I am so a chicken. And so I'm like, you know what? Today, tonight, when I drop her off, I'm dropping it like it's hot. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I'm like psyching myself up. We get to the car, drive back, pull up to her dorm, and I say, and I pull out the second flowers, and I threw it on her lap, and very suave, very cool and calm and collected. I went, so those flowers earlier from the day, that was actually your flowers, but I was really afraid in the way you reacted, and you got really red, and then you blushed, and then you got really nervous, and you stopped talking to me, and when you stopped talking to me, I was like, oh no, she knows that I like her, and if she doesn't like me, and this is going to be really awkward, we got a 30-minute ride, how am I going to do this? So I pretended that those flowers weren't for you, but they really were for you, because I really like you, and I think you're really pretty, and you smell good, and you laugh at my jokes, and, and you're this incredible woman, and I really want to get to know you more, and I don't want to just be your friend, I want to be more than a friend. <gasps> And then she said, I feel like I'm going to throw up. <laughs> and then for 45 minutes, she didn't say a single word. She sat in my car. And I wanted to be like, you know you don't have to stay here, right? You don't tell a man who's just confessed his undying love for you in um, auctioneer voice that you feel like you're going to throw up. Like, it's just not the way this goes down. And um, I'm sitting there, and 45 minutes later, she says, I like you too. And 15 years to this very weekend, that girl Virginia and I have been dating. You call her Jenny, and I call her the love of my life. Yes. Yes. You can clap for that. She's awesome. But let me tell you something. I learned something that day. If I had not said anything in that moment, I could have lost my opportunity. I get that putting yourself out there is terrifying. But you never know what's out there until you put yourself out there. I now stand on that other moment, on the other side of that risk, and for 15 years, I've been able to date the fruit of that risky moment that I took in telling how I feel. And I can honestly tell you this, that like 15 years after dating, I love her more today than I ever did that moment. She is more, you don't have to awe me, I'm just telling you the truth. Okay, I'm not awe. No, I'm telling you that like 15 years later, the woman that I know her to be eclipses the woman I hoped she would be. 
I did not have the creative mind or the capacity to dream the type of character and woman and diligence and sacrifice. Like I did not even know because I honestly would have never thought I was worthy of someone like that 15 years ago. I live and wake beside one of the greatest gifts God has ever given me every single day. And today we love each other more there are kids in the room, so I can't say this out loud, but you know what I'm talking about when I turn the thermostat up? Okay? Yeah, shape of you, it don't matter. Right? I am so glad I took that moment and that step. And here's the thing I want to leave you with, because this is really critical. One of the early commitments that we recognized about our relationship that was this thermostat moment for us was we call ourselves Team Causey. If you're inside our household and you hear us deal with something, we are Team Causey. If Ella seeks to conquer and divide, like Daddy, can I have a popsicle? Nope. Mommy, can I have a popsicle? It's like, no, 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 Team Causey. We are united against you. <laughs> we will never be divided with you. We are united against you. When we have arguments, when we have fights, it is not us arguing and fighting. It is us attacking as Team Causey this problem in front of us. And 99% of the time, the problem in front of us is something I've done. <laughs> Truthfully. But that Team Causey, because this is the beautiful thing I realize about marriage. This is not true about most things in life, but marriage, it is definitively true. You get the relationship that you build. That if both of you put your hands together and you both are committed to building something great, I will all but guarantee you, you will build something great. Because there's no other, no other thing in life where two people come together with absolute commitment to one another with all the pomp and circumstances wrapped around it and says, from this day on, we will build something together that we would have never imagined we could have built by ourselves. That's why we wanted that song played today to set this message. Because that song embodies what I think God's ideal was when we enter into marriage with a mindset that says, I'm not going to be a thermometer. I am not going to react. I'm going to be a thermostat that knows and determines and presses towards what we want to see. And that's why I believe that the best years of my marriage is in front of you, in front of me. And that the best years of your marriage can be in front of you. And before you today Use the hammer in your hand to tear down what you've built. I would encourage you to realize that the same hammer that you use to tear down that relationship can be the same hammer you use to rebuild something better than you've ever imagined before. That that hammer in your hand does not have to destroy your relationship. It can actually take it to deeper places than you've ever imagined. And will it be painful? Will it have difficult conversations? Yes, but don't you want to get to the end of your life and not be filled with regrets about the most important things in your life? Don't you want to arrive and sit in that porch rocking, proverbial rocking chair, although in, I think in our future, it won't be a proverbial rocking chair. It'll be like a hover chair or some type of like floating device and it'll be like virtual reality and we're some island with an air conditioner. Like, I don't know what it looks, but in that moment, she's there beside me and, and in my like deafness and when I can barely hear, she's screaming to me, I love you more now than I ever did then. Like, that's what I want for me. That's what Team Causey said we're going to build together. And so I would encourage you, 
to really consider what do you want to build? Is it easier to tear it down and to walk away and start all over? Yes, but I can promise you, you won't like me saying this, but I will promise you, when you get to the next one, you will pull out the exact same blueprints and you will start to build the exact same thing. Unless you change. And that God's intention for you, more than God intended David to be king, God intended that your marriage would be a life-giving thing. And that you can build something far greater than you ever imagined. But it starts with you stepping back into the gate and in your own life and in your own heart saying, you know what? I'm not done. I'm not finished. I'm going to build something great. And if you're willing to say that, and you can have that conversation, then people will awe at your story too. And they will stand in awe of the relationship that you two have built. Let's pray.